Good morning. <laughs> How we doing? Uh, this is our final lesson on the uh, series where we've been covering the Ten Commandments. Uh, we'll be covering the Tenth Commandment, and uh, as we has been our custom, we'll go ahead and read from Psalm one nineteen. This is a section labeled Psalmic. Uh, be Psalm one nineteen verses one thirteen through one twenty. I hate the double minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe, and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Father, uh, we thank you again for this day um, that we get to worship you. And what a privilege that is. Um, and we thank you uh, for giving us this uh, time and this this place that we can come and study your word together in community. Uh, we love you. We pray that uh, the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the 10th commandment. Um, I'm just going to read it real quickly. The, the two accounts in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are actually pretty close. Um, in Exodus 20 version, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And if you just compare the two accounts, the Deuteronomy 5 account begins with, with you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and then goes through um, all of those things that are typically associated with the household. Um, Besides the order, there's relatively not much of it. There's not much of a difference there between the two uh, accounts. Um, as we've kind of been going for the last few commandments, in particular, uh, kind of the basic meaning of this is the desires of our heart must be pure. Disorderliness in the heart brings disorder. I can't even say that word. Brings the same in action, and it denies that our heart's desires are always good and or beneficial. Uh, it obviously forbids envy toward blessings that others have experienced, undue comparisons with others that produce covetousness, which we're going to talk about, discontent with our own situation, which is usually directed towards God, or the idea that material things are what bring true satisfaction. And likewise, uh, we see the positive, the negative, what it forbids, what it encourages. Uh, it encourages contentment with the blessings that God has given to us. The attitude that all of our needs are met in God, moving beyond the externals of life to the issues of the heart and the improvement of our situation in light of the abilities or the proper ways that God has given to us. Um, Oswald Alice, um, he kind of sums it up. Just a couple of points here that he makes that I thought were interesting. He said, he, he, most of the commentators that I've read uh, kind of hit on the same things as. Um, is that this commandment is a summary of the five that precede it. Some say the four that precede it. Um, and, and perhaps for this reason, that's why there's so many details are given. If you remember, 
Uh, let's see here. If you'll flip over quickly to page... Sorry, there's so many pages here. Page 8. Towards the bottom of the page, let's see, you know, five red lines in a row. That's those last five commandments we've gone through, and they're brief. Two words. And the first... Uh, uh, seven, eight, uh, six, seven, eight, or just two words. Um, but we get to the very last one and we have an elaboration. We haven't seen an elaboration like that since we were up above in the first table, right? And so there's <clears throat> commentators saying that this detail that is given here um, is, be- is likely because this is a summary uh, commandment and that, as we're going to see, uh, this, this uh, violation of this commandment tends to bleed into all the others. Uh, so the, those are some of the reasons why commentators believe that it was structured in, in that way. Uh, Dr. Heiser, in his uh, podcast, he, dis- he discusses the word for covetous, for covet, which is uh, a Hebrew verb, hamad. Um, it says it always focuses upon a specific object of desire and the sight of which can, uh, stimulates the craving to possess it. The action is not just a, but he'll, he'll say there are two different types of examples in the Old Testament where this word is used. In some cases, the action is not just a mental state, but which is implied, but it's action. And uh, like in Exodus 34, uh, 24. Um, but there's also an inward feeling, and you see it in some passages like in Proverbs 6. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Uh, and other verses. So the issues for, this issue is further complicated when you consider, let's say, parallel issues like um, can uh, thought, proper thought be, uh, or improper desire, can it be legislated? Can it even be avoided? And, and how, does that, how does that temptation come? Um, it talks about there's no, no greater difficulty when you talk about this commandment as there is when you consider the commandment to love God or um, one's neighbor or the stranger or not to abhor the Edomite or the Egyptian or to hate one's brother and one's heart. Those inward, um, inward thoughts, inward affections, those inward... Um, um, that inward brokenness is it, it's it's difficult to kind of put your hand around. And what one of the commentators are saying is that you see this expressed in the other commandments, in action, often, and that they believe that's maybe, like I said, perhaps why it was listed in this order. Um, it's um, uh, Doctor Wenham has a nice description of Hamad or covet. He says it's by choice. It's a, re- a reference to an obsessive covetousness. Covetousness. It could be a gateway to other uh, violations of other principles, every other principle in the Decalogue, and it's at the root of all the other ones. Um, moving on to page four, it's a place, uh, it's, it's, it's basically the same thing there. Curd, under Dr. Curd's comments, um, he, he mentions that the negative appears twice in this command. If you look back at page eight, You'll see it. It's the first, uh, the last red little line, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then we see that negative again, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Shall not is there twice. But like we mentioned before, and the way that people, you know, we consider the concept of the 10 words and how the different, you know, Judaism uh, versus Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, etc., how they divide the commandments, 
these negatives are considered, those two are considered a pair. And so it's technically considered one commandment. However, you do have two negative statements. And they think that is, uh, is used for, uh, it's a lot of literary device for showing emphasis upon the negative, uh, the importance of the command. Uh, back on page four. Um, Dr. Fesco uh, continues to go on. He makes mention that God knows man's heart. He knows the motives of our heart and our actions. Um, he mentions coveting is not simply wanting something, but simply wanting something that we do not possess. He brings up two examples in the Old Testament, King David and Bathsheba, how the covetousness led to other sins, obviously, right? And, um, I mean, a whole list of sins there. Um, and likewise, King Ahab with Naboth's vineyard. Uh, it's just two examples where you can see some of those principles in play. Um, some people will argue that Christ uh, raised the bar in the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount. But actually, uh, I was going to read a little bit of what Dr. Fesco says here. He says, recognizing, uh, top of page five, Recognizing that the Tenth Commandment targets heart motives helps us to see that Christ was not raising the demands of the law in his Sermon on the Mount. Rather, by connecting the demands of the Tenth Commandment to the rest of the law, Christ revealed that merely dealing with the external behavior was not enough. The law also dealt with motives of the heart. That is because violating the Tenth is often the gateway to violating the rest of the law. And he speaks in here of the vertical element um, the covenantal context of this commandment, God had promised to provide for all of Israel's needs. Um, he had promised to give Israel the promised land with each Israelite household receiving a portion of the land. Um, and then if the Israelites recognized that everything they possessed was a result of God's kindness to them, they would be less inclined to covet what was not theirs. So there's a lot going on here. Like we said, all of these, con all of these commandments both have a, a, an acute or a local context. Uh, in light of where Israel is at at the time of the giving of the law. And they also have a broader context, one that reaches for all people, all places, all times, right, including ourselves. And, and they want to focus on both of those. He says, no, notice that the commandment prohibits the coveting of earthly possessions. Then um, that this should clue us in to the vertical element of the commandments. Remember, the first four or five we talked are primarily vertical, uh, man and God, the, the second table, the second and a half are primarily horizontal, man to man, but there are elements of both in each table. And that's what they're drawing out here, that there are implications both vertically and horizontally for this command as well as all the others. And uh, moving on, he'll say here in the middle of page five, Christ's contentment with the will of his father, his heavenly father, which reflects his obedience to the 10th commandment, fueled his fulfillment of the eighth. He did not covet what his heavenly father had not given him in the wilderness. And he's talking about the temptation narratives of Christ, Luke 4 and in Matthew. Um, he says, notice how Christ's contentment was manifest before Pilate. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then, would, then my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So Christ had his sight firmly fixed upon heavenly things, upon the will of his father, and he was uh, not upon earthly things, wealth, transient glory. Um, this is his mindset. And um, 
It says here at the bottom, um, when we read the 10th commandment, we should not simply see it as a prohibition against coveting the possessions of others, but instead see Christ's contentment in the will of his heavenly Father and his pursuit of heavenly things. And that's that, I appreciate that. It's kind of a, I think it's a, a pretty mature uh, approach to all of these commandments where you see not only the the negative prohibition but the positive encouragement what it both prohibits and encourages um, oftentimes people will look at these ten commandments in in more of a negative perspective but we should consider both a more balanced view then on page six um, he'll connect this to the church um, what lies at the root of our sin is a lack of contentment with God's will. And um, I, at least in my own life, I think a lot of times worry or fear um, on my part seems to come back to this issue, um, a lack of contentment, not necessarily just with what God's doing or not doing, but the way he's doing it too, and the timing of things. Um, and I think this uh, addresses that as well. Um, Dr. Fesco mentioned uh, Paul as a reference. Uh, Paul's um, you know, famous statement, um, contentment in the will of our Heavenly Father was the, the mindset of Christ as well as Paul. Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, whether, therefore to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. And everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthen, strengtheneth me. The old King Jameseth. <laughs> He'll also mention here uh, from Matthew, um, you know, um, lay not up for yourself treasures upon the earth. You see the, the, the emphasis here. There is a vertical and a horizontal. There is a positive and a negative. They all work together. They approach the same concept from multiple perspectives. And you can see how this commandment bleeds into all the others, why it's put very last, and why it's elaborated, why it's longer, and why it's given the two, the two apodictic negatives. It's giving you a sense of emphasis, and it's showing this, this matters, and it affects all of these other... It, it, it has negative consequences for violating all of these other commandments. Um, that is the basic material for... Um, the 10th commandment of all the commentaries I read, most all of them um, hit on those same features, uh, the text. Um, I think what I'd like to do briefly is just kind of run through um, the big picture, kind of a reflection of where we've been. We've covered a lot of ground in the short period of time. Um, and sometimes it's good to just kind of reflect on that. Um, if I kind of go back to the beginning, we, we kind of uh, we had a, a couple of sessions, two or three sessions, where we went back uh, prior to the prologue, and we talked about things like what exactly are the Ten Commandments. We said, well, it's unmediated, direct revelation from God. God directly spoke to the people, um, and uh, we said, are the Ten Commandments really commandments? We talked about the fact that it's actually the Ten Words. Right and how it's broken up differently, but amongst different traditions, how the Westminster Confession of Faith divides it, and why, and the wisdom that's that is in that. And we talked about literary context, not just how they're divided, but is it five and five and four plus six? We talked about the Confession twenty uh, nineteen there, the two tables, primarily the first four being vertically oriented, the second horizontally. 
um, but elements of both in each. Um, we, we saw that there's a, syst- a, a scheme of organization in terms of what we think, say, and do, both regarding God and others. The fact that there's some, there's some sense of order or arrangement in a way that uh, they're arranged by descending order of seriousness of offense, right? And so if you look there, I think it was yeah, on page 8, those columns to the right of the, of the text in the English text, you'll see kind of the color coding. You can trace back through those and see how those different arrangements um, complement each other. All of that structure is obvious within the text. It's a very structured, detailed, orderly account. And I'm going to, I hope to show you here in a minute, um, some things that we didn't pick up on that are going to, hopefully they'll be new for you and it'll be exciting. Um, we notice that the length of the commands, the first four are longer than the t- last 10, or the first four are longer and number 10 is longer, right? The first four are longer, the first table, the, the, the back half, only 10 is longer with elaborations. Eight of them were uh, positive, two were negative, and we noted that t- the, 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 the 10th here has the double negative. There were two tablets or tables. Um, Yahweh spoke directly to the people, and he directly inscribed the tablets himself. Um, we'll quickly read here. I'm on the middle of page seven. I'm going to read from Dr. Currid, who hopefully you guys will become a little bit more familiar with in time. Um, he says, first, um, it should be noted that the Lord reveals these laws directly to the people without any mediation of Moses or another prophet. God does not merely speak the commandments themselves, but also inscribes them with his very finger on stone tablets. Second, God gives Ten Commandments, or words, and this number appears to symbolize in Hebrew culture the idea of completeness. No additions are allowed. The text further reveals reveals that the tables are written on both sides and completely filled, leaving no room for additions. Finally, these commandments are written in stone, never to be erased. And so we we covered that material as well in past lectures. Um, the audience is Israel in one sense, in a local sense, but in a universal sense, it's all humanity and the church. And the setting, as we discussed before, for the Exodus account was at Mount Sinai. Um, in the other text, it's, kind of, it's listed as Horeb, which is more the general area where Sinai is. And the situation was the institution of the covenant. So the law was given at the institution of the covenant in the first account in Exodus. In Deuteronomy, it occurs in the plains of Moab, and the occasion is the covenant renewal ceremony uh, before Israel goes into the promised land. Um, the context, you know, we have two, two versions. We discussed how it's partially addressed in Exodus 34, but the two primary canonical accounts are Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we noticed various quotes, echoes, and allusions throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament as Old Testament and New Testament writers would comment on uh, in, their, in their narratives and their discourses, they would comment about aspects of the Ten Commandments, whether they were interpreting or applying them in various ways. Um, we talk about a, a several hermeneutical concepts, or literary features of form and style, specifically distinctions related to the law, like the reform classifications for the names and three types of the law, moral, civil, ceremonial. Remember that? We talked about the three functions or uses of the law, the first, second, and third use. Um, We talked about two kinds of law, apodictic, those uh, statements that are like thou shalt not, or casuistic, 
if-then type statements. And we talked about the Hitterite suzerain vassal treaty form, which not only underlines this, uh, the Ten, um, uh, and what's going on in the broader context of the giving of the Ten Commandments and the covenant agreement at Sinai, but it also is the structural backbone for the um, entire book of Deuteronomy. And then, um, largely leaning on Dr. Fesco, we discussed some of the biblical, theological, or in covenantal and redemptive historical context um, for all these commandments, which was a, kind of some heavy lifting. Uh, and then in closing, we tried to focus on the application. And we noted that Christ is the hermeneutical key for all of these commandments, right? Um, the interpretation and application of each of these commandments is not as easy as we often presume. Um, the scope of the commandments includes both broad and narrow implications and applications. The context is the key, and that we have to consider both the horizontal and vertical aspects of each commandment. So I know that's a lot. I'm going fast, but we've covered the material before. You've got the notes. If you ever have any questions or need copies of the notes, I can email those to you. The lectures are online if you want to go back and listen to some of them. Um, and the thing that I would point out is, you know, this study of the Ten Commandments is really just a point of departure. You could pick just almost anywhere in the Old Testament, start from there, and you're going to, like Watson's book, you know, each, each individual commandment was a point of departure for him to go through the whole of Scripture, right? It's almost like every commandment's a mini systematic theology or something. But uh, we started here. It wasn't by design, but the whole Old Testament is so organically connected, that you can start basically anywhere and then work yourself back to a fuller understanding. And I think that's kind of what I want to focus on here real, real briefly is some things that we may not have picked up on in this study that will draw us into the broader context of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the book of Genesis and Exodus and in um, others. One of the things that you can note here at the, at the very top of page 9, at the very top of page 9, if we want to locate this, let's say, in terms of, uh, of the broader, let's say, the broader um, uh, trajectory of the narrative in the Old Testament and the Pentateuch, we start with Genesis and the creation. We get into ex Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There is a broad, a broad chiastic, 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 let's say, chiastic arrangement to those three books, okay? Where if you start down here at A, foreign country, where are they at? They're, the people of Israel are in Egypt, right? Foreign country. Through the Exodus event, we get into the wilderness. They arrive at Mount Sinai, right? Where they're given the law in Exodus 20. At the end of Exodus, as we get through additional parts of the, of the law code, we get into Leviticus. The book, the book is about living in the holiness of God, what it's, what it's like. These are the rules. This is the requirement, the holiness of God. And a whole lot of other things, but this is kind of the pinnacle, okay? If you would say, if this is, looks kind of like a mountain, doesn't it? Like start for A, you go all the way up to Leviticus, and then what happens? You see a reverse trajectory. You start, they leave, they leave um, in numbers, they leave Mount Sinai. They go back to the wilderness where they wander for 40 years, and they arrive in the plains of Moab in anticipation of entering into the promised land, right? So there's a reverse pattern. A broad reverse chiastic pattern, and at the end they get they get right here at the end. They're in the plains of Moab, and Moses gives his address again. The Ten Commandments, right, in the renewal ceremony as they're beginning to enter into the Promised Land. 
And so some commentators will argue that there was a broad, that this, that this um, the arrangement of this was designed in such a way to emphasize the, the, to emphasize, that's a Hebrew literary technique, to emphasize the focus upon um, um, these events and how they work together. Um, let's connect it to Genesis, right? In Genesis, um, I'm going to start off right off the bat. Um, the 10 words, God spoke, connecting God to speaking. In Genesis, when, you, when, you, when we go back and look at the Ten Commandments in the prologue, we talked about God spoke, right? I'm going to flip back to page 8 real quick and just read the very first part of the Ten Commandments here in the prologue. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, that's the very first line, Right? And God spoke all these words, saying, If you were a, an observant Jew at the time and you were familiar with, uh, you know, you were familiar with the, your, your uh, Old Testament and Genesis in particular, you're going to go directly to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it's God speaking 10 times. If you'll flip briefly over here to page 11. I printed off Genesis 1, okay? And every one of you see the blue lines? And God said, and God said, and God said. Ten times in Genesis 1, God says. If you flip over, you'll see you can count them up. All ten times. Ten times it says, and God said. And this is in the creation narrative, right? <clears throat> ten times. And then, so when you see... Here at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in the prologue, it says, and God said, God spoke all these words. They're immediately going back to what? What, what, what many commandments do we have? Ten, completeness. How many do we have? How many, how many times? How did they arrange the narrative in Genesis 1? Ten times, and God said. Okay. We also see three spheres, right? Connecting heaven, sky, sea, and land in both Genesis 1 and the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, we see, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And if we flip back over here to, um, well, if we just look directly below, you can see in Genesis, uh, you can see in Genesis 1, in the order in which um, God created. And one, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day and the dark night. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. It's the same three spheres. Okay? This is, the Ten Commandments, the prologue, is drawing upon the narrative of the creation account of Genesis 1. Okay? Um, you're going to see... Um, if we continue on, what you're going to see is he creates kingdoms and domains, right? In days one, two, and three, here in the middle of page nine, days one, it was light. Day two, it's sea and sky. Day three is land. There's your three spheres. In days four, five, and six, he creates kings and rulers to rule over those domains, right? And then day seven is the Sabbath. There's a pattern. That's a symmetrical pattern in the way that he creates in Genesis 1. So he creates, right? He creates that. <clears throat> I'll notice here what uh, Dr. Curry says. He says here in the bottom of page 9, the six days of creation include two sets of three days in parallel. The first triad describes the kingdoms being created. The second, 
portrays the creation of the rulers over those kingdoms. Because of the detailed repetition and structure, some scholars have argued that this account is poetic. Uh, I think the, the best way that people have explained it is exalted prose or exalted narrative. It's elevated prose. It's not typical narrative. There's more, there's some design. It's still historical narrative, but it is elevated, almost poetic. It's complex. If you move over to page 10, I'm going to show you just a little bit of the complexity. Some authors have, have noted the, first, the seven Hebrew words in the very first line of, Hebrew, of Genesis 1, 1, right, is seven words. And it's composed of 28 letters, 7 times 4. If you'll look here, uh, it's hard for you to see uh, because I didn't put the English there with it, but you can count the seven words. And the second verse is 14 words, 2 times 7. Not only that, but there's seven days. There's seven paragraphs. And I only counted six, but um, there's seven times God said, and it says, and God saw. Seven times it says, on the earth. Seven times, and there was, and it was. 21 times the heavens. 21 times the earth. 35 times God. That's seven times three, seven times five. The whole section has 469 words. That's 67 times seven. The first three words are translated, in the beginning God created, which contains 14 letters, and it's divided evenly among the particle in the middle. The number of letters in the first four words is 14, and the last is 14. And the numerical value of the first, middle, and last letters is a multiple of seven. And the numerical value of the first and last letters of all seven words is a multiple of seven. It's a literary masterpiece, down to the letter, to the jot and the tittle. Okay, there's exceptional design in the construction of that narrative, and the author of the when they wrote when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, when God wrote the Ten Commandments, right. In the Exodus account, he's reflecting on that in the structure of the design of the Ten Commandments. These are things that we don't typically bring together, but I think they're important to note. And the other thing I'll note here is that God is creating social order. In, in, the, um, in the Genesis 1-1 account, it says, uh, I don't have the actual text here, but the, um, and the land was, uh, it says tohu vabohu, but topsy-turvy, disorderly, Right? Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered, right? God brought order to disorder. What he's doing in the Ten Commandments and the establishment of the covenant of the people of Israel going into the promised land is he's establishing moral and civil order. You see what I'm saying? So he's reflecting back on this as a recreation event. He is creating a new people. Israel is a new Adam, right? He's created the domain, he is giving them the promised land. He's creating people to steward over that. A new Adam. Israel is the new Adam. And they're tasked with what? Imaging God. They're, they're tasked with the same commandments that were um, for, for, for uh, Adam, the first Adam. So we've reflected on the temple imagery and the, presence of the, the importance of pre, the presence of God with his people. We talked about Joshua. We talked about all those things. Um, we talked about that the original audience was about to enter Canaan. So if, if, in their perspective, if God can make the earth habitable, then he can certainly make the land of Canaan a reality, destroying the enemies of the Israelites. So um, I, I would refer, uh, you know, encourage you to kind of look through the Genesis 1 account. I think um, if you look over on page 13, um, this, you can read some of that. That's basically what we see in Genesis 1. There's actually what they call uh, 10 sections, the way that the book is structured. 
Um, I would make note, there's uh, connections here on page 14 to the 10 plagues. We see 10 plagues in Exodus, right? And when do we see the 10 plagues? At the, at, the, at the beginning of the Exodus account, and God is basically, what these authors are going to explain in here, is that how these 10 plagues line up with the 10 events of the creation day narrative in Genesis 1. God is systematically decreating, right? He is decreating through the plagues. He is reversing the order into disorder in order to rebuild again. If you look at what, um, you see the comparison there in the, on the table, in table eight in the middle of page 14. The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, is using the plagues to throw the natural order into chaos in Egypt and to remove his people, put them in, a new, in the promised land, right, to be in his presence as his image bearers, as the new Adam, and he will recreate that community. And he does that through the design and the implementation of the new Ten Commandments, which is the, you know, the, the essence of the law there. And so the parallels between Genesis 1-1 and Ten Commandments, Exodus, the whole of the Pentateuch, it's, uh, I mean, we're just scratching the surface. Um, that's why I was hoping, you know, I kind of gave you some information early on um, to kind of help you uh, to, to get your hands around the broader structure of the narrative of the Old Testament and the Pentateuch. There's much more here. Um, with that said, I want to kind of uh, real quickly, and I'll shut this down. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of the women in the church, in particular, are going through um, uh, through the Bible reading plan, which is chronolo- uh, chronological. Um, I think it's super important if we really want to grow in our understanding of the text and our understanding of God through this text. Um, <clears throat> if we want to um, grow in that way. Um, to take it seriously that not only do we read devotionally and chronologically is a good plan, and I would encourage everyone to continue that. If you're not on a scheduled routine daily reading plan, I can help you with that. Um, I think going forward, our, what our goal is, is to start a new series of classes. It's going to take a long time to get through it, but systematically to go through the entire Old Testament to begin with, um, cover each book, um, not in huge detail, but probably to the level of detail that we've covered these commandments, where each week we would come in and discuss a particular book. Um, what I what I have um, what I handed out today uh, this book. Um, there's a professor at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, professor of Old Testament, Hebrew, um, Greek, everything. Um, but this book is a workbook. It covers every book of the Old Testament. Um, there are online lectures and open. If you open the cover of the book at the bottom, I've highlighted the website. If you go to that link, you can watch each week. You can watch the lecture and you can answer the questions for that week. Um, and that will prepare you, uh, for coming to the class, uh, where we'll discuss some of those things that he discusses in his lecture. Lectures are only about 30 minutes long, but they're very informative. This is not seminary level, but it's, a, it's not too far away. So it's going to stretch you. If you really want to grow, I'm going to challenge you to do it. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot of rich material in there. Um, the other thing is this book here. There's a companion. This covers the Old Testament. There's another that covers the New. No one, most people in here are probably not going to have a whole shelf with a com- set of five commentaries for every book of the Old Testament. This book covers all the books in the Old Testament. It's written by professors from RTS, so it's solid reform teaching. There's a companion that's a New Testament. We don't need to worry about that for the time being. 
but I'm going to encourage you to get this book. Um, I can get it for you if you'd like. Um, the, this book is free. They gave you today. This book is also is edited by the same professor who created this book. Parts of it are going to be uh, similar. Um, but each, each, this book, every chapter covers a different book in the Old Testament. And as we go through it, this is a one chapter instead of a book as a commentary. It's going to give you, it's going to cover the book um, at a 500 to 1,000 foot level. Not 10,000, but not five foot. Um, but it's going to give you one place to go if you want to quickly see anything on any book in the Old Testament. And if you read through this, every, if you'll read through this chapter for the book that we're covering that week, go through the online lecture, which is free, and answer the questions in this book. You're going to be very well prepared for the discussion that we'll have in here. Probably because of the summer break, it's going to take us several, uh, it's going to take almost a little over a year to get through the Old Testament. Um, but it prepares us to go through the new. And then once we've gone through both the old and the new, then we can do other things which are even more challenging, uh, digging into individual books, different theological themes and how they progress through the Old Testament into the New, how New Testament authors use Old Testament texts, etc. Lots of things that will challenge you, but I think they're going to bring the Bible to life. Um, and, and hopefully, um, I don't want you to be discouraged. I think it's above you. Um, it's, it's really not, but I think it will challenge you. Um, Hopefully this is uh, what you guys want, both want and need. But any questions? Thank you, Jeff. You guys good? All right. Well, I love, I love you guys. I'm, I'm praying for you guys. Um, I want to encourage you guys. And, um, and I think we can uh, all grow together in this whole process. Next week, if we could do the first chapter, we'll hit the ground running. Um, we'll hit the ground running. And um, like I said, the lectures are only about 30 minutes each, really easy. Um, and, 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 and I think, I think you're going to grow from it. I really do. So let me close this out in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Um, we thank you for this time together uh, in your word. We pray that you would uh, bless our intentions in this class, that we might grow together in our understanding of your word, and through that, our better understanding of who you, you are and who we are called to be in Christ. We love you, and thank you for all things in Christ. Then we pray. Amen.